This is episode 134 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Power of Organoids with Dr. Jim Wells. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get to that, we've got some big news, people. The Stem Cell Podcast is looking for a co-host. You ready for this? If you're a PhD graduate working as a researcher in the field of stem cell biology and you love to talk science, then we want you. Government shutdown got you furloughed? We may have a job for you. Stay tuned for more information in the coming weeks on how you can apply and you could be here doing this with me and our guest. Moving on to today's show, we have Dr. Jim Wells from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center on the podcast to talk about his research on pancreatic and gastrointestinal organoids. We've also got a roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But of course, first, we have a message from Stem Cell Technologies, who'd like to introduce you to their one-step research for se- uh, resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. All right, on to the roundup, people. We got a good one for you today. First, coming out of Sao Chen Chen and Mark Suzinski's group at UCSD in La Jolla, California, we have a story about spinal cord injury. More than half a million people in the U.S. suffer from spinal cord injury, you know, and that's just the U.S. The idea here is that 3D printing technology may allow the fabrication of a personalized scaffold, you know, personalized, so it'll fit the precise anatomy of an individual's injury and stimulate, guide, and align axon regeneration. So what Chen and Tuzinski did here is they used a process called microscale continuous projection printing, okay? And they use this to create a complex 3D architecture using a variety of both biomaterials and cells in one continuous print, all right? So it's like a one-off, all right? And then further, for proof of concept, they implanted scaffolds into rats with the T3 complete spinal cord transection. That's no good, ladies and gentlemen. You get that complete T3. You're in bad shape. But uh, they put in these scaffolds, these uh, that were printed with this microscale continuous projection method, uh, and they were loaded them with uh, neural progenitor cells uh, and put them at the site of injury. Four weeks later, the channels and the solid core of the scaffold retained their pre-implantation structure without any kind of breakage or deformation. That's big because you want the thing to stay intact in the shape, you know. That's the whole point of making it individual, individualized, personalized scaffold to fit your spine and also biocompatible. So it did doesn't exacerbate the spinal cord inflammatory response, which is really key because you're not going to get any repair if it's like Hiroshima in there, you know what I mean? 
So, uh, you know, they did that. And this is the, this is the big part of it. I mean, the take home is that the injured host axons, they regenerated into the scaffold and synapsed with those NPCs, those neuroprogenitors that went in with the scaffold. So they connected to the preloaded cells and the preloaded cells grew out. They extended uh, axons out of the scaffold and into the uh, host spinal cord below the injury. So they bridged the gap people uh, and that restored synaptic transmission and significantly improved the functional outcome so you know it was one of the first things they talked about with stem cells uh, we're gonna have people getting up out of their wheelchairs and now 20 years later we're getting there we're getting there i think uh, you know this is a nature medicine article that didn't get maybe enough press as it deserved because there was a functional improvement with this Neuroprogenitors, fine, not pluripotent, but still. Pretty amazing. On to the next story out of Italia. I love to see stem cell stories out of Italy because, you know, famously Italy, they weren't big fans of the whole generation of embryonic stem cells thing because they're very, you know, the religious overtones there really affect science. No coincidence here. This is an IPS story because they don't want to be destroying any embryos. God love them. God love us all. Anyway, these uh, group, it's Graziano Martello from uh, University of Padova in Padua, Italy, living the good life over there. The bottom line is pretty straightforward, but essential. It's uh, uh, IPS story, you know, that IPS cells and, uh, you know, it's been a, we've been able to make them forever, right? Not forever, but a good decade now. Um, and there's this other distinction that we got to talk about here is as a, a primed uh, ES cell or pluripotent cell or a naive. So all human, the human classically derived human ES cells were all primed, whereas the original mouse ES cells were naive. They were from an earlier state. They could form more cell types. They're more naive. They have greater potential. There's been a lot of effort to try and get human cells into this naive state to increase their potential. Um, and of course, that dovetails with the efforts to make induced cells rather than having to generate them from embryos. It's a matter of practicality. In this case, they use a combination of microfluidics and modified RNA to directly reprogram somatic cells into naive human induced pluripotent stem cells. They use a recipe. So it's modified RNA. This is non-integrative. It's just the RNA. It gets in the cells, it gets translated into the factors, and then it goes away. So no footprint. Here, they use mod RNAs that are encoding OCT, SOX, KLF4, and MYC. Okay, so the classic OSKM, Yamanaka factors, plus NANOG. All right, and NANOG there is the key to get them into this naive state. They put it in a microfluidic device, Critically, they're able to do it with very few cells, fewer than 1,000 primary human somatic cells, no genetic integration, okay, and delivery of the modern RNA factors by microfluidics. 12 days later, they get IPS cell lines, naive human IPS cell lines. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day here, the argument is that this approach, although we are able to do this, you know, it's not like this is totally novel, proving principle, but I think it shows, it proves the principle on an economic scale, enabling a robust, cost-effective production 
of patient-specific, naive, induced pluripotent stem cells for regenerative medicine or disease modeling or drug screening, a whole kit and caboodle. So they're marching forward there in Padua in between glasses of wine, having a nice Chianti while solving the world's problems. Talk about problems. You know, the real problem with cancer is the vasculature. You know what I'm saying? Tumor vascularization. It's the hallmark of cancer. Any kind of growth. It's a hallmark. Vascularization. You need vessels. You need blood supply to get bigger. Okay? For tumors to progress, you need new blood vessels to form. It's going to allow the oxygen and nutrients to come in. Also, though, the vessels, they provide a kind of a conduit for therapy. It allows immune cells to get in there and clear out that mess. Also, it's a conduit for drug delivery if you're trying to deliver chemo. All right, so blood vessels are at once the problem and the means to a solution. Uh, and so there's been a huge proliferation of anti-angiogenic therapies. Um, because, you know, also the vessels are the means by which the tumor escapes the primary site and metastasizes to distal sites. It's how it spreads, all right, through the lymphatic vasculature. So clearly... The vessels, it's a target. We can shut down the vasculature like we shut down the government and maybe we'll make some headway. So that's the idea, but anti-angiogenic therapies, they've had limited success and that's driven us to really you know, revisit. Wow, we gotta understand what, what is the deal with these vessels? Where they come from, what's their behavior? So this is a, a group from Kiarash Khosrowterani. Um, sounds like an Iranian name. It's a group out of uh, University of Queensland in Brisbane. And uh, the group here, what they did is they fate-tracked the, these, uh, the vessels, the endothelial cell populations in melanoma. And what they showed is that there's a very, 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 very early infiltration of endovascular progenitor cells in the early growing tumors, so just when they grow to the critical threshold where they need to have vessel infiltration and vascularization, they get these early endovascular progenitor infiltrates. They ask as a, act as like a vasculogenic progenitor. They make these neovessels from nothing, from single cells, um, progress towards this transit amplifying stage and then differentiate to all the mature endothelial subtypes like arterial, venous, lymphatic. This all happens within the tumor, like de novo. So this is a big deal. And, and mechanistically, when they looked at like what the signaling pathways that were driving this, they found that the, these progenitors were not reliant on VEGF signaling, but they were reliant on this RP, RBPJ factor, which is a, a part of the notch signaling pathway. And this is huge because all the conventional anti-angiogenic therapies are focused on VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor signaling, for a reason. They think this is critical. You need VEGF signaling to become endothelium in the first place. And this angiogenic sprouting is thought to be mediated primarily by VEGF. But it seems like this neovasculogenic process within tumors, not dependent on VEGF. So all this gene trap and VEGF trap, all these anti-angiogenic anti therapies that have been focused on VEGF signaling, maybe this is why they've had shown limited success. Maybe we need to partner up with some notch. And you can envision maybe you have the VEGF, which is controlling the angiogenic 
processes like the tumor vessel branching and growth at, at the perimeter of the tumor, but maybe, you know, the little vascular progenitors that are sitting there latent waiting to revascularize aren't getting targeted. Hey, we need to go after both of them. Next, on to the cold, cold depths of Minnesota. Rita Perlingero's group. She's looking at the age-old question here. What is driving and governing the behavior of long-term hematopoietic stem cells, all right? These LTHSCs, we know them as the source of all the blood, all right? They're responsible for lifelong blood population. Steady state, though, they're quiescent, all right? Get this, steady state. They'll only divide around five times in your whole life. Maybe that's in the life of a mouse. I don't know if they've shown that to human, but the idea is that if there's no grief, there's no stress, they're just hanging out on the slow roll. But in stress conditions, boom, they blow up, they exit the quiescent state, proliferate, and provide all the new blood to replenish the HSC pool, right? And progenitor, all the blood. But, um, you know, after decades and decades, the original stem cell, probably the OG, call it the hematopoietic, after decades and decades of study, the mechanism that regulate this LTHSC activation and self-renewal not really well understood. All right, but TGF-beta, we've known for a long while, TGF-beta is part of the process. It's known to play a, a strong role, and even more so, endoglin, this one factor, is shown to be selectively expressed in the LTHSCs. However, you don't know exactly what it's doing, because when you knock it out, embryonic lethality never gets off the ground. In this method, readers group there in New Minnesota, they were able to do this uh, conditional deletion of endoglin, and then they did all this transplantation into lethally irradiated mouse, and ultimately showed that endoglin is important. You need it. You get a profound engraftment defect without it. Um, and it seems like what, it's, what the problem here is that it's a long-term engraftment. It doesn't work. The long-term, the tertiary, quaternary transplant. You're getting a failure to re-enter this quiescent state is what it seems like. So it's, it's, a, it's inhibiting their re-entry into quiescence. You know, you need... Endoglin is kind of like an off switch. Um, but endoglin, interestingly, seems to be positively modulating TGF-beta signaling. So activating TGF-beta signaling ensures that the HSCs will then re-enter the quiescent state. Okay, so, you know, after five or so decades, they figured something out over there about endoglin and Rita Perlingero's group. It's very chilly in Minnesota right now. I feel for you guys. On to the last story. Oh, boy. You know, the blood, again. We're, we're kind of staying... In modules here, before we get to our guest, we're going to talk about this cool story in cell stem cell, a short article. It's uh, lentiviral gene therapy. Okay, lentiviral gene therapy, it's been, you know, kind of in, in the background, been proliferating and, and, you know, building a lot of steam here and, and momentum towards clinical application. Um, there have been a lot of success recently with treating like hemoglobinopathies, beta thalassemia, sickle cell anemia using this lentiviral approach where you just go in there and you take some stem cells, take them out, plug in some lentivirus that'll restore the factors that are missing, put it back in the body, recolonizes, boom, you're good to go. Um, this is a different kind of story. Same idea, 
but different kind of story addressing a different disease. It's called immune dysregulation polyendocrinopathy enteropathy X-linked syndrome. That's a mouthful. They call it IPEX. Thanks, God. Um, and, you know, IPEX, it's this killer, devastating autoimmune disease. It's caused by mutations in the gene that encodes FOXP3. Okay, FOXP3, uh, it's required in immune cells for proper development of the regulatory T cells. All right? And so with the, the T regulatory cells, they're a big deal because they suppress the autoreactive, the autoimmune set, like cells. So if you don't have the T regs, the, everything goes haywire. You can get these severe, often fatal, multi-organ autoimmunity. All right, and you can deal with this by doing like bone marrow transplant, allogeneic, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, but it's, it's, that's limited. There's not a ton of hematopoietic stem cell donors out there, one. Not enough cord blood, not enough donors. Also, you know, you get... You gotta have a good match, even fewer of them, and then you can always, even despite all that, you can always get the transplant complications, right? So it's, there's, there may be better ways. Let's say it's a challenge to treat it with the conventional methodology that we're doing all these um, just typical allogeneic, right? And, and the idea also is so you're missing FOXP3, right? So let's just go in there and do like we do with the beta thal. Just go in there and, and overexpress the gene that's missing and will restore order. But here's the problem. If you just go in there and blast FOXP3, then you get a defect in the hematopoietic stem cells themselves. So when you put them back in and they're blasting FOXP3, you get a self-renewal defect and they pretty much go away. So that doesn't work. What you need to do is you need to restore the endogenous uh, expression apparatus there. And short of going in there and knocking in a gene by homologous recombination using CRISPR and what have you, which is tremendously laborious, a, a shortcut is that you pump in the lenti, right? Except driving your gene of interest here, FOXP3, driving that gene, you don't just put some constitutively active promoter, but you put in the actual endogenous regulatory machinery. You take that promoter locus of the endogenous FOXP3 gene, and you carry it along with the cDNA for FOXP3 and the lentiviral cassette. You put that in the stem cells and maybe they'll behave. They'll express FOXP3 the way that normal hematopoietic cells do, hematopoietic stem cells do, which is to not express it until they need it. At the point when they're gonna become Tregs, FOXP3 comes up, stays up, they function. And that's what they did, all right? That's Donald Cohn out of UCLA. They used a combination of this, it's called a Scurfy mouse, which is funny, funny name. It's a FOXP3 mutant. It's a model of this IPEX syndrome. They take the hematopoietic stem progenitor cells out of that scurfy mouse. They put in this like neo lenti FOXP3 with the endogenous regulatory sequence. They shoot that in there. They express FOXP3 just like they should. It's off and then it comes on. The T regs get made. It suppresses this autoimmune phenotype that the scurfy mice show. Also, if you take uh, humanized mouse models and take human hematopoietic stem cells and put this modified lentivirus into the, uh, the hematopoietic stem cells, 
and put it in the humanized mouse, then they start to behave normally. You know, they start to not express FOXP3 and P3 until they differentiate and they're, they renew and are transplantable and, you know, secondary tertiary mice. So that suggests that this whole, you know, system may be easy to recapitulate, similarly efficacious as it is in the scurfy mouse in human IPEX patients. So it's kind of maybe a, a new paradigm where I get cell stem cell type uh, attention is, is because this is a, it's, it's a nice hack, I think. It's taking the robust robustness of the lentiviral approach, which has been through the whole rigmarole of the FDA already, and is pretty much ready for prime time, and you're combining it with the cell-specific and, you know, uh, cell-specific, cell-subtype-specific expression modality. So, you know, I've always said, we'll have to ask, Dr. Wells, when he comes on in just a minute, what's going to be first into the clinic with stem cells? I always thought it was the blood. Because the blood, it seems like the blood, we've just done so much with the blood. and It's like a single cell that can become the whole organ. So I've always thought the blood was going to be the first to make it. But, you know, the blood, it seems like it's really hard to make the blood from pluripotent stem cells. So we'll have to see what Jimmy has to say about that coming up on the interview just a minute. But um, before, you know, before we get to that, I think we got to ask another question of us all. What does the future look like for organoid-based cell therapies, huh? What challenges do organoids face for clinical application? We're going to talk about that a little bit with our guests, but you guys can get a shortcut, you know, get a jump on it. Listen to the roundtable discussion from the 2018 Custom Frontiers in Organoid Medicine Symposium which was moderated by our upcoming guest, James Wells. You can look at that for answers to these questions and more. We're going to hit him up again with some of the same questions. You can see if he's consistent in his answers. Gain insights from regulatory, academic, and industry experts as they discuss the biggest hurdles facing the development of organoid-based cell therapies. Register for the recorded panel discussion at stemcell.com slash custom panel. All right, guys, we're on to the interview, but first let me apologize for the quality of this recording. The connection was not great, but you're going to have to bear with us there. You know, we're catching these guys where they live, in the lab, getting access to them, their research, their minds, their insight. I guarantee you the quality of this research and the content in this conversation is going to make up for any snap, crackle, pop. You're not going to hear it by the end for all that's stirring in your imaginations. Dr. Jim Wells' research focuses on understanding the embryonic development of the pancreas and gastrointestinal organs. His lab's basic research seeks to identify the mechanisms involved in the embryonic development of endocrine cells. His translational projects include generating 3D human tissues from pluripotent stem cells to model diabetes and digestive disease. Jim, thanks for joining us for this chat. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about the research focus in your lab? Well, for about 20 years now, my own interests have been really centered around how organs form in the developing embryo. And um, part of the strength here is, is a real uh, breadth and, and depth of embryonic development and basic mechanisms uh, uh, at the Institute here. And the last 
10 years or so, we've been attempting to translate that information into approaches to direct differentiation of pluripotent stem cells uh, into organ cell types. And um, about 10 years ago, we, we realized that not only can we coax these cells to form, uh, pluripotent stem cells to form individual cell types, we can actually get them to have sort of a groupthink mentality and undergo a morphogenetic process to generate actual three-dimensional tissues. And um, uh, I think that was for us a real uh, a breakthrough in that, not, that we could actually model not just sulfate decisions, but a little bit more details and in-depth of how tissues and germ layers talk to one another. Uh, and again, having an in vitro approach to do this really opens up a lot of uh, uh, new, new ways to think about it. Right. So, I mean, I think you have a very modest assessment of your contribution there. Uh, I just want to, by way of review, and there's way too much to review in a lot of very high-quality journals, so I'm going to skip those and just pretty much summarize your nature, nature, med, cell, stem cell, let's say impact factor above 30 type journal contributions. I mean, you've done it all. You started really back in the day with just endoderm, but you've specialized and made everything under the sun, including intestine, gastric organoid, gastric fundus, uh, the colonic organoids, you've made the enteroendocrine cells, esophageal. So you're kind of within the entire dendrogram below end endoderm. You're looking at all these tissues um, making major, major contribution in these big papers. And now you're moving into this 3D element, I think, like you alluded to um, in the last five to ten years, let's say. Why organoids? What is it? that organoids lend to the system I think that the make them such a powerful tool. Organoids, you know, or for sort of a historic name, really are more than a cell line. They're less than an organ. They're somewhere in between. And why we think that that's a, a real advantage is that they have the advantage over individual cell lines because they're primary tissues. Um, but the real advantage they have over actual organs is that you can grow them in vitro and you can use all the nifty tools that, that all of us biologists like to use, gene targeting, uh, chemical screening, that sort of thing. So I think they, it's, a, it's a new tool that really lands in that sweet spot. Um, and of course, the big one uh, being at a, a children's hospital is that uh, these are human organoids. So the advantages of uh, of all the, the model systems we have now, one additional tool in our toolbox, and that's a, a human system that you can manipulate and for, for the first time is really study mechanisms of, of human developmental biology, which, again, is really what gets me out of bed in the morning as a developmental biologist. Right, and that's really, I guess, at the fundament there. You are a developmental biologist. You're looking at basic mechanisms, but you're also, as you said, at you see children's, right? And uh, the goal there with kids and having a developmental model is to understand maybe what would underlie birth defects in some cases or diseases um, that are prevalent in kids. In, in the most recent paper you had in Cell Stem Cell, in fact, you use these human esophageal organoids to try and um, unravel uh, the etiology or origins or mechanism 
uh, underlying is uh, esophageal atresia that is associated with uh, SOX2 mutation. Would you elaborate on that story for, the, for our audience, please? Sure, sure. Um, well, I, I should preface this by saying that the work we do in organoids, I think, is still at a stage where we're almost just reproving what developmental biologists have shown using model organs. Uh, organism, sorry. Um, and I think in our efforts to make uh, one in that paper uh, generate esophageal organoids, while that was, I think, uh, you know, novel, our, our use of the organoids in that system, I think, was a little bit uh, a proof of concept in that uh, a well-known gene like SOX2, which has been shown by uh, a number of other labs to be important in mouse esophagus, development. Uh, we also, you know, obviously showed that this is important for human, but then used the strength of the in vitro system to do more mechanistic studies, to do, you know, uh, uh, omics and whatnot, to really try to get at new mechanisms to explain why patients with SOX2 mutations have esophageal atresia. And I, and I think, again, uh, using the strengths of the in vitro system, uh, uh, allowed us to get at novel concepts that are, are uh, involved. So uh, wind to antagonism, uh, things like that. And again, I, I'll keep it you know, more at a 10,000 foot view. But as a developmental biologist, ha biologist having now an in vitro system uh, negating the need for uh, painful micro dissections and lots of time in the animal room, that kind of thing, this really gives us a, a, a way to go after uh, things in an omics way and a screening way. So it is, um, I think, for me, really exciting to have that opportunity. Now, in the future, we're part of a large consortium to identify new mutations in, in patients with esophageal atresia. Um, now, that's where I think the, the real strength is going to come in, is to discover uh, new genes, new mutations, new alleles, and new mechanisms. So that's really the exciting part in moving forward is this discovery of, of that. And of course, you know, in the long term, being able to generate esophageal tissue for reconstruction is, is of course, a, a, an important long-term goal. Yeah, well, right there, I think in that answer, you encompassed both the uh, possibilities as well as maybe the limitations, and we can maybe drill down on that. First, the, the possibilities there... In terms of like therapeutic, could you give me an example of how you could leverage the kind of mechanistic study that you, you've done here in this article that we uh, just described, and then how that translates to a, a therapeutic approach? Well, I think in the short term, uh, using organoids to identify developmental mechanisms or developmental uh, dysgenesis that happens in patients can, can immediately be used uh, to, to improve patient care in the form of uh, organoid diagnostics. So say, for example, we have patients who get referred to us uh, with very complex uh, congenital disorders, uh, so complex that your average clinical barrage of, of tests can't identify all the different myriad of, of cellular and tissue phenotypes um, that, that a patient might have. We, we've now been able to model patients with some of these complex diseases, uh, grow different organs of the GI tract, and identify 
totally new pathologies that were not identified. Um, we've then gone back, consulted with the physicians. They've gone back in and done more rigorous uh, 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 you know, acquisition of biopsies, things like that. And they, in fact, now confirm what we identified in the lab. They've confirmed that in the patient. So that allows us to use a diagnostic approach that then can be confirmed in the patient. And now these, now the physicians we're working with are, uh, have come up with new treatment strategies, uh, uh, drugs that might alleviate these new symptoms that they hadn't pre- previously appreciated. So that's something that will improve patient care today. Um, of course, what everyone wants to know, you know, in the long term is, you know, growing, growing transplantable organs. And there's great uh, proof of, of, concept and that are now uh, of growing cell types and simple structures, uh, clusters of endocrine cells for diabetes, uh, retinal pigmented epithelia for blindness, neurons for, for other degenerative diseases. Those are going to clinic today. So for sure, I see no reason why generating more complex tissues is not going to be an option for therapeutics in the future. Certainly, we've done it now in the lab. We've uh, use them in animal models. So I, I don't see why that shouldn't be an option as well. Uh, of course, it's a much harder problem. Uh, engineering a, a, a tissue, or for example, in the GI tract that's made up of cell types from all three germ layers, you know, that requires a fair bit of heavy lifting to get to a point where these are going to be uh, uh, as functional as they need to be for a therapeutic effect. Yeah, I think one of the great uh, insights that you probably had early on, like most developmental biologists that then come into the kind of engineering sphere, uh, is that, you know, you want to make the machine, you got to put the rudiments together, and then the machine will make itself, right? And I think that that, you've kind of shown that that's the way it works, and many other scientists, and you allude to then just making a more complex rudiment, perhaps, like, three primary germ layers. But there's still, in terms of the, the fundamental limitations, and uh, as you kind of alluded to, uh, that, you know, getting organs, that's, that's what everybody talks about. Uh, but there's, there's some obstacles there. It's a, t- it's a tougher problem. One of the major limitations there is just the vascularization. How do you get something in a dish that's vascularized, but without having, like, a, a, a heart? pumping or whatever, you know, I guess it's a bigger engineering problem. What, what do you think that that's something that can be overcome? If so, do you, do you have any, any kind of, what would be an approach you think that would be viable? Well, certainly there's, I'm sure a lot of approaches that, that we haven't thought of yet, but I think the more straightforward approaches really lie at the interface of biology, stem cells, development, and, and engineering. Um, and this is obviously an interface that is, is rich for, for uh, solving some of these problems and, and is one that's really been developing this tissue engineering, biomedical engineering, uh, and, and stem cell biology. These, you know, these fields now have been, you know, married, I think, long enough that we're starting to see some pretty interesting fruit uh, coming, up, coming out of that. Um, one approach would be, as you mentioned, vascularization. Uh, Biomedical engineers uh, in a number of places have developed uh, fluidic devices with artificial vasculature. And, of course, the stem cell biologists, organoid biologists, what have you, are, are myself included, are 
actively uh, collaborating with some of these people to try to grow and shape organoids, get them vascularized in vitro so that we can scale up and generate something more functional. So there's, there, we're already, uh, we already have several, a uh, couple of collaborations in that area. And I know of other groups that are also going in, in that direction. So I do think that that's uh, probably even one of the more tractable issues. I think, um, uh, uh, Certainly, there's been a lot of progress. There has been. And I mean, speaking of progress, I was a grad student uh, when, well, soon after human embryonic stem cells were first arrived. I know you were a postdoc at, at, you know, arguably ground zero uh, of the whole stem cell phenomenon in in Doug Mountain's lab um, or at Harvard, uh, Mm -hmm. working with Doug Mountain uh, at the very least. Um, so, I mean, you, you've really, you've grown up in the field and at the head of the field, you've come to the, to the, to the head of the class. Uh, a a couple questions I have with regard to that. I mean, what would be, what's, would be your take on the, the arc of stem cells in terms of expectation and, and hype at the front end when, you know, it was all anyone could talk about and it was very much in the news and people were making big promises to the kind of, to, to the reality where, where we are now and moving forward into the future. Could you just give us your assessment of, of how the field has come along in the past two decades? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I started thinking about embryonic stem cells as a tool of developmental biology, um, uh, was actually a long time ago. It was I think I actually wrote a proposal to go to Doug's lab based on using mouse ES cells as a model of gastrulation. And that was a, I think I wrote that in 1995. And I'm like, this is complete fantasy. This will never work. <laughs> so I was actually, you know, thinking that, you know, the field would, would probably make some incremental advances and it might be a useful tool. But to think that we can grow pretty complex 3D tissue structures that actually function uh, what we're doing today, I, I didn't see that one coming. I would not in a million years have predicted that level of progress and success. Now, I do agree with you. In the early days, you know, there was certainly plenty of hype uh, in, in more of the lay media about, you know, curing diabetes and Alzheimer's and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, that will happen. You know, that I think hype is, is sort of something that happens when, you know, the media gets a hold of something and it's not well-balanced uh, input from scientists saying, well, there's promise, but, you know, we've got 20 years of work to do before that happens. Uh, so, you know, that, that we've seen that certainly in every field that's, that's become sort of mainstream. Um, I think the progress vastly... Uh, uh, was was much faster than I expected. I honestly do. And, and in terms of actual therapeutics, like I said, I've listed a few. You know, that's from, from the very beginning, 20 years ago, to actually putting these cells into patients. You know, that's, that's pretty amazing progress when you're talking about cell and tissue-based therapy. We're not talking about screening it for a drug. This is, this is going from an idea to growing a human cell for transplantation from, from a pluripotent stem cell. I think that's incredible progress. 
Um, and yes, we have to watch the hype because we all don't want to overpromise, and we want to make sure that demand and interest in the field don't pressure really bad clinical trials as we've seen in other stem cell fields. Um, you know, uh, uh, so I think, I think the pluripotent stem cell field is actually progressing at, at a, a, an, an appropriate rate. And, and from a scientific standpoint, I think it's been phenomenal. I agree with that assessment. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for one minute. Here. Yeah, right and, and not even with regard to, I'm not disagreeing at all, uh, but just as a follow-up uh, and a kind of a separate question. So do you, I guess, as you were alluding to, there's, there's this kind of adult stem cell, everything's MSC related, mesenchymal, everything's a mesenchymal stem cell. So let's just use that as a catch-all. These MSC type uh, therapeutics that are just in practice and some of them now it's coming back having these terrible adverse because they're totally unregulated and the stem cell tourism it's a mess and i think that the educated among us can dissociate the two you know the the sensible from the from the reckless but then there's also kind of i would say maybe aggressive or or very forward-thinking ambitious uh efforts like in japan with trials where, I mean, some would argue prematurely that we're putting cells into patients, um, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of schedule. Mm -hmm. So, and then at the same time, you have like CRISPR, right? So CRISPR has kind of taken all the attention and there's crazy stuff perhaps going on with CRISPR that's way, I think, way beyond what anyone would have imagined you know, genetically engineered babies. I know that's the news headline, but we didn't think that someone would have done that in, you know, this year. So that said, do you, do you think that because maybe there's a little bit of skepticism or fatigue with the stem cells and there's this new technology that is supplanting it in terms of the hype and now there's clear results perhaps out there, do you think that like the, the field or at least the machine is moving past stem cells? And if not, because I, I, I don't agree with that, but I want you as someone who's at the forefront to give me concrete examples of how we're still, that we're like way, like as you just said, we're putting the, the cells into patients. Can you give us some concrete examples to allay all the de depressed stem cell postdocs out there that think that maybe their, their time has come and gone? Well, I can't pick up a paper you know, related to stem cell biology and, and not be excited to stay in this field till I'm in the grave. Because frankly, the promise of, we're, we're just getting started, you know, and certainly in, in trying to generate, you know, really functional therapeutic cells for transplantation. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, you know, sound uh, uh, negative about people following the sexiest technology du jour, but, you know, anyone who can't find something absolutely essentially fundamentally interesting and important in the areas of, you know, stem cell biology isn't looking hard enough. Um, and frankly, the, I think the CRISPR, uh, CRISPR is, you know, as a technology 
paradigm shifting, undoubtedly. Um, and at some level, I'm I'm okay with the the the, the sort of twenty four new twenty four hour news cycle kind of focusing on something else because frankly. The next time it should really be focusing on stem cell biology should be when there's uh, clinical efficacy, uh, mm-hmm. really demonstrable uh, uh, cure in, in the, in, in the um, clinic. That's when I think the news cycle should will come back because at the moment, I think we're getting pretty close, we as a field, and we shouldn't go too fast. We don't want to pull a, a gene therapy. Uh, fiasco and and fall behind two two decades because of of uh, harming a patient because of going too quickly into clinical trials. So I, I think taking it nice and easy and and doing really uh, doing a stem cell based therapeutic uh, a pluripotent stem cell based therapeutic based on good science and and preclinical data will get us where we want to go. And and at that point, I think that's what we're all waiting for and hoping for. Um, we don't, you know, we don't want, you know, pluripotent stem cell medical tourism, you know, type things happening. We want it to happen where we can control it and, and, and do scientifically rigorous clinical trials. Um, but yeah, the CRISPR, the CRISPR stuff hitting the headlines now is just, Ooh, I, I think we all saw that one coming. I don't think that was a surprise. Um, you know, it's just it was too easy for somebody to do and for that to fall through the cracks. So I, I don't want something like that to happen in the pluripotent stem cell therapeutic realm for sure. Hmm. So in regards to, let's say, if you had to put your 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 bet on one horse in the field in terms of like what cell type is going to be applied because it's the lowest hanging fruit successfully and safely what would you guess that would be in, in man first in human? Well, I, I do think the, there's been real promising sort of phase one uh, data coming out of the, the, the blindness field, you know, the pigmented, pigmented retinal epithelial field. That seems to have already really suggestive, promising data. But this obviously has to be scaled up into hundreds and hundreds of patients. Um, that one seems promising, and, and certainly from a from a sort of a conceptual standpoint, it, it would seem the most straightforward uh, in in to generate uh, insulin producing beta cells for diabetes. And I realize um, probably the cells aren't there yet, or the devices that companies are using to deliver them aren't there yet, but. Just from a conceptual standpoint, you know, uh, uh, trying to make a single cell type that does two things, uh, senses glucose and secretes, uh, uh, you know, therapeutically important amount of glu- uh, insulin in response, that seems to be, you know, obviously something that enough people have really good scientists have invested a decade of research in. I, I have to think that that's going to work. Um, and, you know, obviously, again, with a new field and, and trying to figure it all out, how to deliver the cells and all these other things, I, I think uh, we're still figuring all, you know, the field is still figuring out how to do that. But, but that seems sort of conceptually uh, uh, something that, that really should work. So I, I would guess that we'll see 
that as, as a, a mainline therapy, you know, in five years. All right. This is a tough question because outside of my field, it's all Chinese to me. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think the last domino to fall would be? The toughest challenge out there for cell-based? I mean, certainly whole organ, you know, or something that's functional enough to, to replace uh, a, an organ's function. You know, uh, that's that'll be the last one to fall. I mean, at that point, then we can, you know, go on to other pursuits because, you know, <laughs> that's, you know, I, I'd, I'd be scratching my head to figure out something to do after that. Androids, I think, is the next one. After yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I think that'll be, you know, and, and obviously the more the more complicated the organ, the harder it'll be. I mean, making bone stints is something that I think biomedical engineering is, is pretty close to making something that can... Uh, support the load it needs to support in a body, uh, things like that, structural components. All right. Last domino to fall. Yeah. Complex organs are going to be the tough ones. Uh, but I'm optimistic. I mean, hearing you say that we, I think what I'm hearing you say is that it's not, it's not going to be like in a, a generation's time. I feel like in our lifetime, we're going to see pluripotent cells and their derivatives in play therapeutically. All right, stepping back now, though, to uh, learn a little about yourself, the person, uh, besides your science. Um, a general question for you. What non-science book uh, are you reading or have you read recently that is awesome for scientists or non-scientists? I read a, a non-fiction book uh, not long ago uh, about uh, it's basically a history of the Vikings called uh, The Sea Wolves by Lars uh, Brownworth. And um, I, I hadn't uh, I really thought much about Vikings other than, you know, it's a great subject for uh, TV movies and, and whatnot. But it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating culture. And it basically, I think it appealed to me as, as um, not that I'm, you know, feel that science is all about uh, going out and pillaging, but I do think it is a lot about uh, just throwing caution to the wind and and seeing what's around the next corner, um, and and just that absolute maniacal drive that scientists have to to discover the unknown and and the the, the feedback mechanism when you are sitting there in lab on a Saturday morning and you're looking down and you see something that is in fact nobody that no one else is, has observed. I mean, I think that nearly pathologic tribe that scientists have, uh, uh, I think is not dissimilar than, you know, a, a Viking exploration that it's just, you know, you have limited tools, but you're going to just use them to the fullest. You have your, you know, your, your 60 foot long boat and you're going to make it all the way from, from, uh, from uh, Northern Europe all the way to uh, North America. That kind of mentality, I think, was appealing. And, and I think at some level, scientists are uh, a little bit like Vikings. I like that comparison. I mean, there's the old uh, cliche, the intrepid Lewis and Clark type metaphor, pioneers, but the Viking thing is so much more badass. And <laughs> I got to be honest, the description, too, I feel that. Like the pillar, you're looking at that thing, you're like, yeah, I took that from you, nature. So it's, it's very, it is a, a maniacal uh, endeavor. I like that description. All right, 
second, last question of the interview, which is in two parts. What was your greatest, you talk about, you know, looking down in the microscope, seeing something for the first time. I think all scientists worth their salt can identify with that feeling. What was your greatest one of those or something like that? And, and, and the converse, what was your greatest, like, disappointment? You know, like, oh, I really thought that was going to work, and it didn't. Well, it, it's almost combined uh, answer to that because, um, you know, we all we're all told that that real the real cool discoveries are often not what we expect to see. Um, and I would say actually are identifying um, that pluripotent stem cells can undergo a, a, a differentiation, morphogenesis, spontaneous um, organization in the organoids. That really was was entirely unexpected and, and a phenomenal aha moment. Um, the the person in my lab who was really uh, uh, driving that project, who uh, Jason Spence, who's at University of Michigan now, um, uh, he called me down to the lab one day saying, you know, our our stem cell cultures are, you know, doing something weird. And, you know, we were really just using these cultures to study early development patterning, you know, just monolayers of endoderm cells. But when, when I went down and we were looking at these cultures, they had formed all these weird structures uh, in response to our manipulation. And they had all these little floaties that I, I suspect had been, you know, discarded with the media for, for weeks and weeks previously to that point. But we're like, well, let's have a... A closer look. And it turns out these these structures that that were popping off these dishes had a, a actual organized structure. If you look carefully, of uh, epithelia and, and and stromal cells. So at that point, we figured that maybe this isn't debris. Maybe this is something uh, a developmental process that that is happening in the petri dish. So that was really an aha moment because at that point we started to grow them in, in three-dimensional systems, and, and that's when they formed organoids. So I think, uh, but that was also an answer to your second question, that while it wasn't dis a disappointment, it was a surprise. It was something that was um, completely unexpected, that these cells in a petri dish had the ability to self-organize, um, completely surprising, and uh, uh wouldn't say it's a disappointment, but it, it certainly wasn't something that we were looking for. And I think that, you know, you try to tell your trainees to not to go into an experiment with expectations, but rather to analyze the data that you get and then figure out what it means. And, and I think that's something we do a disservice when, when if a trainee comes out of a, a, an experiment saying that, you know, it, it tanked or it was a disappointment, it could also mean that they just really weren't looking at what the data were saying. And that happens every day. I mean, in my lab, you know, I, I have a student now who got a very unexpected finding. And we have no idea what it means. But I guarantee you there's a really important finding in there. We just have to be smart enough to figure out what it means. So I'm trying to convince her that it, don't think of it as a disappointment. You know, really think of it as an opportunity. And, and we'll figure out what it means. Yeah, that's a great lesson. And it's funny because I've, I've talked to two types and I bet there's a lot of people who, who have both experienced, but there is the, 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 the experience that I've heard about, I don't know that I've shared it, where you had such a flash of insight 
that you knew that the experiment that you just conceived of, you knew exactly how it was going to go because you just saw the whole organism for a minute. Um, but I think more common, and I think it's a, it's a real measure of a, of a great scientist, young or old, and perhaps not old, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mature. Uh, but I think maybe it's why young scientists are so good is because they don't know what they're expecting all the time. And, and like you said, therein lies the, the great insight. You just have to be smart enough to figure it out. Thank you so much for lending those insights to us, Dr. Wells. Uh, you really are a Viking pioneer in your own right, and uh, <laughs> we really appreciate you coming to share your time with us. Hey, Dalen, it is a real pleasure, and uh, keep up the good work. This is a, a great. Uh, it's great to have this series going for for young scientists who who do want to get a little input from us, um, as you say, more mature scientists. <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of our show. That was a great chat with Dr. Jim Wells. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget, guys, we're looking for a co-host. You can apply for that. Go to stemcellpodcast.com, and you should see the link for that. Join me, you guys. we got so much to talk about. We could use some friendly banter. It'll be delightful moving into the new year. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Catch us on the next episode. For now, add this one to the blockchain, ladies and gentlemen. Goodbye. <laughs>